podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the DNF1 Retro Podcast, the show where we dive into the F1 archives and relive some of Formula One's most memorable and somewhat controversial moments with our own blend of analysis and discussion for your listening and viewing pleasure, depending on what platform you choose to follow us on. And of course, joining me on this journey through the F1 history archives is the one and only Mr. Courtney Pye. Courtney, first of all, how are you doing this afternoon? Are you okay? Hello, everyone. Um, I'm good. I'm certainly looking forward to discussing which was one of my favourite rivalries in Formula One history. Absolutely. Now, of course, it has been a while since we last did a retro podcast episode. Of course, it was the Lewis Hamilton episode of how he won the 2008 World Championship at Brazil. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. But I can assure you that we are back and hoping to continue this series on a more consistent basis, given that you guys requested it so much. So please let us know in the comments section which moments in F1 history you would like us to revisit in future episodes. We'll certainly look forward to covering more as the future goes on. Now, as the title of the episode revealed, this episode will be dedicated to the legendary rivalry between two of the greatest Formula One drivers of all time, four-time world champion Alain Prost, and of course, the late and very, very great, the legendary three-time world champion Ayrton Senna. And in particular, we'll be focusing on their most famous showdown of them all, the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix. So sit back, relax, guys, as we have a healthy bit of discussion and we help tell the story of Prost versus Senna, Japan, 1989. Similar to the 1988 season, the McLaren team had been dominant throughout 1989. Going into this race, Prost had a 16-point lead in the Drivers' Championship over Senna, 76 points to 60. The Brazilian had won six races to the Frenchman's four, including the previous race in Spain, but had only finished in the points on one other occasion, while Prost had only finished out of the points once all season at the Canadian Grand Prix. Therefore, Senna had to win both this race and the final race in Australia to have any chance of retaining his World Drivers' Championship. However, if Senna did win the last two races, he would be champion regardless of where Prost finished due to the drop point system. So that was a little bit of a background there, Courtney, on how the 1988 season and then, of course, where we lead up to in 1989. Now, one thing that is worth noting was the drop point scoring system, and this is quite important in the context of 1988 in particular, because for those of you that don't know what the drop points system was, um, it was the scoring system we had before we have the one that you're probably familiar with today, not necessarily the points that are awarded, but the format in how they were awarded. So the way that it worked in a short way of putting it, I suppose, is that over the course of the 16 race season, you would score points from your best 11 results, and that would count towards your overall championship position. You wouldn't score points from the other five, regardless of whether you got five wins or not. So it was nine points for a win that race, therefore meaning the maximum number of points that you could score was 99 for 11 races, 
Now, this was significant because in 1988, Alain Prost had actually outscored Senna by 11 points, if you included points from every single race, despite Senna winning eight races to Prost seven. Now, under the drop points system, because Senna's results, or his best results, I should say, saw him outscore Prost's best results by three points, eight wins and three seconds, where Prost got seven wins and four seconds, Senna had won the driver's title in 1988. Now, following this, Courtney, Prost went on to become a proponent of the newer point scoring system that we're more familiar with in 1990, where all the points scored over the season would count towards the final season standings and the race winner would get 10 points instead of nine. So I suppose first things first, what did you make of that when you first heard about that, Courtney? Because that was quite a surprise to me. And in a way, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's kind of hard to overlook the fact that Prost over the course of the season had outscored Ayrton Senna and yet Senna was the world champion. Whereas today, of course, if that was the case, they adopted a similar point system to what we have today. There's no doubt that Alain Prost would have been awarded the title in 88 and no one would have complained about it. Well, first of all, I can understand why it would have caused bad feelings, particularly for Prost, because Prost was in a position where he felt he was in a position to win multiple championships with McLaren. McLaren were the best team. He felt he was the main man and Senna was going to be almost a protege for him. So he felt he was in a very, um, as I've already stated, a very healthy position. But things didn't quite transpire that way because of the, you know, the point system. However, let's not forget that in and around that time, there was a lot of reliability issues with these cars. And I think the aim was for the guys at the very top of Formula One is that they didn't want the championships to be defined by DNS. So I can understand at the time why that point system would have worked. But you can understand the frustration that would have caused Prost and was probably the start of the issues that we went on to see in 1989. Absolutely. And I think that is something that has to be taken into consideration because, of course, this is by no means a championship at the time that would have necessarily been decided under the newer system by the driver that was outright the best driver over the course of the season. As you mentioned, it would have most, most, you know, uh, most likely been decided by the driver that had the best reliability, which of course is a factor. Let's not forget in order to finish first, first you have to finish. But how many times have we seen championships over the course of history that have been, could be pinpointed to one moment in particular of reliability or misfortune that can cost a driver a world championship. I know one that springs to my mind and probably the same one in your mind as well. And that was uh, Lewis Hamilton in 2016. Fast forward 26, 28 years, I should say, um, to that particular moment in Malaysia where it all completely exploded for Lewis Hamilton and in his championship literally went up in smoke along with half of his engine. Um, so you see, there is a reason or rationale as to why they went with that system. But I suppose... In retrospect, it's better now that reliability is so much better that we're not discounting some races that could eventually decide a different world champion to the one that we ended up getting. Exactly. But I, I can understand why Prost was annoyed. Because if you look, it's, it's simple. With the old point system, he would have won. He would have won the championship. And he would have gone into 1989 with a sense of confidence. He probably thought he could have gone on to win three or the four next championships but things started to go pear-shaped for him given you know the point system that they were racing under at the time 
Absolutely. And, and this kind of brings us nicely into 1989, because, of course, when Senna joined McLaren, he was a protege that had so much potential, obviously very successful in 1986 with Lotus winning the title there. And, of course, set us up nicely to when he joined McLaren in 88, obviously won the championship there as Prost was probably expecting to win the title himself was not the case, of course, owing to the system that they had. But in 89, Courtney, um, I suppose, could you sum up the story of the season of how Prost kind of started off with admiration and respect for his uh, competitor like Senna and his teammate and the rivalry just soured and grew in intensity to the point where we end up getting to where we are in Japan? Well, to be fair to Senna, Senna is the world championship. So, obviously, he's gone into 2018 feeling confident, you know, with the impression that I want this team to be my team. Because this is what Formula 1 drivers do. You've got two drivers in each team. But everyone wants to be number one. If they tell you otherwise, they're clearly lying. So, after winning 88, Senna would have thought, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to make this my team and I'm going to be a legend in Formula 1, win as many championships as possible, and I think the first race that we look at where it really started to show was in Imola. Mm. You know, because after a safety car, they were basically told at the restart that, you know, you need to... Um, they had an agreement that Prost was going to be leading after the restart. This didn't happen. Senna overtook Prost. And that really was the start, of the, you know, at the point where there was a mistrust between the drivers. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, this kind of soured throughout the season onwards. And of course, I think one race in particular that was quite memorable um, was Mexico in 1989, where Prost started to really see uh, the shift of power at McLaren. If it hadn't already moved into Senna's corner, he could literally see it with his own eyes, obviously complaining of not having the level of support, not just at the car, but personnel, thinking that Senna had an advantage over him performance-wise, particularly with the Honda engine as well. Well, Mexico is an interesting one. And this is what really sort of highlighted the paranoia because Prost's race was ruined because the wrong tyres were put on during the pit stop. But it wasn't all data because he thought that McLaren sabotaged his race and he felt that Senna had more engine power. So this is where it really starts to come into it because he highlighted it, made it very clear that he thought that because the mechanics, he thought that mechanics preferred Senna behind the mechanics and were giving him an un, um, giving Senna an unfair advantage for the power. And he made that very clear to the media, made it very clear in the paddock, he's adamant that this was the case. Now, yes, he should have felt annoyed about the pit stop going wrong, but this happens, this, this happens in Formula 1 to the very day. It isn't anything personal. But what was interesting is that when they'd done the analysis after the race, they actually realised actually down to his front wing adjustment being being incorrect. You know, Senna had made the right call with the wing adjustment. So Prost was actually wrong. But there were reasons for Prost to feel that the feel that Honda might have, you know, preferred Senna. But to be that public about saying, oh yeah, yeah, yeah they, they sabotaged my race. And it, it, it comes down to the wing adjustment at the end of the day. So that's when the tensions really started to build. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was a popularity contest in some regards between Senna and Prost. I mean, Prost was so analytical in his driving. I, I still believe he was one of the greatest F1 drivers of all time. When you take 
the overall package. And I hear arguments from some people that claim that Alain Prost is the greatest Formula One driver of all time. I get it. I get why they feel that way because, I mean, we talk about the all-time greats, you know, the Fangios, the Hamiltons, the Schumachers, the Senners, and Prost is usually earmarked in that bubble as well. I sometimes don't feel that he gets the respect he deserves in this discussion. I feel people tend to neglect what he has achieved in the sport and why he has achieved so much in the sport. I mean, we're talking about a guy that potentially, if the point system was more favourable or similar to what we have now, he'd have five world championships rather than four. If there wasn't reliability issues that he'd had also when he lost the championship to Nicky Lauda, uh, I was trying to think if it was 85, I believe, when they were teammates, he lost by uh, 84. Oh, lost 84. By, 84. Yeah, 84. Yeah. He lost the championships to Lauda by half a point. And he had reliability issues of his own then that cost him that championship. Um, so he could have been a six-time world champion. You know, the records that stack up do suggest that Alan Prost is successful. But because of the fact that he is not necessarily known for his genius behind the wheel compared to some of the other names that we've already mentioned, even though there's plenty of it there, he tends to get discounted in this argument. So for those of you that probably know of Alain Prost and know of his success. I hope that this episode in a way, and some of the stuff that we've said so far, does kind of um, add a bit more clarity, I suppose, or highlight why some people strongly believe Alain Prost was the greatest Formula One driver of all time. Personally, it's not one, an opinion I have, but I definitely feel like he's higher up the list than perhaps people should be. I had him in like the top four or five. I think some people mm. earmarked him lower. Mad, he's won four world championships and... Um, He's the, f I think, this, the fourth highest Grand Prix winner of all time behind Vettel, Hamilton, uh, Schumacher, and Hamilton. So, and I think it's yeah. also, I think it's also worth noting the era that he was racing in. Mm. For me personally, okay, in the last decade we've had some great drivers, but for me personally, I think that was the golden era of Formula One in terms of the talent they had at the time. Arguably the toughest, yeah, uh, considering, you know, the top drivers, not necessarily in terms of performance of other cars, because there were those that had and those that didn't. And it was really, I mean, you think the Mercedes era and the turbo hybrid era that we see now was massively dominant. Like there were some real dominant cars mm -hmm. in the area, of course, two of which we're discussing in this episode already, the McLaren in 88 and 89. But as I said, we're probably getting a bit sidetracked here, but it's just a point I want to make with Prost because, yes, there was the paranoia, there was the analytical mind, and people were like, oh, you're not really a fan of his, I hate all the politics and the stuff, but it's all part of the game. They all do it, but Prost was just so openly about it in the press. Probably not the best move, but I feel like he was probably driven to such a degree, pun intended, that he had to come out and say something because, obviously, what he was trying to say behind the scenes wasn't working. And I recall reading on a meeting that Alain Prost himself uh, had with um, the uh, sorry, the head of Honda's R&D department and F1 racing program. Um, I think it was Nobuhiko Kawamoto. Apologies if I've mispronounced it right. This was back in November 88. So this was before the 89 season already begun. They had a meeting in Geneva and Prost had expressed his concerns that he felt that Honda in particular was giving Senna preferential treatment owing to their past relationship at Lotus in 1987, where Senna was so successful the season four in 86, and he obviously did well in 87. Kawamoto had confirmed that Prost was actually right in his paranoia. He was actually right in that the younger generation of Honda engineers really loved Senna, and they loved his samurai-like driving style. They used to refer to him as like the samurai. And 
that's obviously a big thing in Japan. Um, and by this time, Senna had developed a close working relationship with the Honda engineers in 1987 when he was at Lotus. Um, and Kawamoto was also able to convince Prosto as a result that he would work something out with Honda and the younger engineers, to, um, you know, at the end of their a partnership for the 1989 season but unfortunately for Prost it never really transpired it kind of continued over into 89 so despite all of Prost's fears despite being proven right at least from the source that he was speaking to at Honda um, and you wouldn't have got more reputable than Kawamoto at the time it just never really delivered on what he would have wanted as a result I'm pretty sure I don't think he was expecting Honda to just turn the tables and give him the benefit of extra performance to sort yeah. of hold Senna back to like pay him back. But I think he was hoping for something on a level playing field because I think he genuinely believed that he was a better driver than Senna. And of course, you can have your own arguments and debates over how true that was. But when you consider the whole package, not just the, the ability behind the wheel, um, it's hard to suggest that as a whole package, Prost wasn't right to a degree. But also... If you're in a sport where you have to, be, you know, you're aiming to be number one, if you don't believe you're the best, you might as well go home. Mm. Because that, that sort of self-belief is what you need to be consistently at the pinnacle of your ability. So that's why you hear them all say, even today, you hear them say, you know, yeah, I'm the best driver. You can, and they, they say it with their chest. Because if they don't, there's no point being there. So Prost is right in what he's saying. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, but th this is kind of the dynamic as why teams don't tend to have two number one drivers or drivers on equal status because of stuff like this. But I mean, this was an incredible rivalry and I absolutely loved watching. I, I really wish I was old enough or alive to see it um, live. Obviously, this was before our time, not long before, but still before nonetheless but uh it would have been something to behold at the time it would have been all over the sporting press everywhere around the world it would have definitely up there um i mean it's it's hamilton rosberg levels but another level on top of that i mean if you thought that was intense but um i, I suppose it kind of ties in nicely to talking about how the Honda McLaren relationship begun. I mean, we, we herald this partnership as being one of the most successful engine manufacturer to team partnerships of all time in the sport. And of course, you know, as modern day F1 will remember Honda McLaren partnership when that was reignited in 2015, literally did not get off the ground. Um, ironically, to a point where Honda now potentially are building a car that could win the 2021 world championship at this time of this recording. Um, I should point out another thing on this recording for those of you that are watching on YouTube. This recording is actually going to be, this recording has been done on the Thursday before the Imola Grand Prix. So if you're watching this, I'm wondering why my hair is a lot longer in this episode than it, it will be by the time I do the recording on Sunday for the review. I've not found magic hair growth or anything like that or got my hair cut and wanted my money back and they just plonked it all back on like... <laughs> That is why this recording is going to be, it's done earlier, but it's coming out later. So this will be out on the, uh, Friday after the, after the Imola race. I believe. The powers of time travel away, Adam. Literally on a retro podcast there. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Yeah. Love it. Anyway, I think we're getting a bit sidetracked, but this, yeah. So we are. Honda. Um, so the story of Honda uh, joining McLaren kind of goes like this, really, for those of you that didn't know. So, 
1987, Honda were with Lotus and they were also supplying Williams. And it was a very successful partnership with, with the Williams team. Of course, one of the teams that were incredibly successful in the 80s and, of course, most of the 1990s before the Ferrari McLaren um, dominance started. And... In 1987, Nelson Piquet had just won the World Championship with Williams and Honda and winning the Constructors' Championship. They completely dominated the season. Honda did want to supply the team with engines for 1988. However, one of the conditions uh, in order to supply them for next season was to sack Nigel Mansell, who would go on to win the 92 Championship with Williams anyway, and replace him with Japanese and Honda test driver, Satoru Nakajima, Kazuki Nakajima's father, for those of you modern F1 fans that will recognise the name. Um, he'd made his debut with the Lotus team in the 87 season alongside Senna, and, and he was okay. It, was, it wasn't massively impressive, but he could certainly hold his own in that car. And obviously they wanted him in one of the best cars, uh, naturally, the Williams was at the time. Um, Williams had refused to do this. They did not want to get rid of Nigel Mansell at all. Uh, Sir Frank Williams was absolutely adamant he wanted to keep Nigel on, which was a huge gamble at the time because, of course, Nigel, still relatively young. They had Nelson Piquet, the world champion in their team as well at the time. And of course, you know, Williams had no reason to feel that they were going to be held to ransom by the Honda team. It's like, well, if you want to win the championship, you're not going to put your guy in that car. I don't care you know, who you got or how good this car is. Um, but it didn't happen. And as a result, Honda ended up supplying McLaren for 1988. Now, one of the big reasons why that happened is Alain Prost, obviously McLaren were driving with Ford engines uh, up until 1988. And Prost had found a clever opportunity where he had obviously been very impressed by Ayrton Senna and the Lotus. Everybody was. It was a case of when is he going to join one of the massive, massive teams? With all respect to Lotus, a great, great team. But it wasn't, you know, in 86 it peaked. But obviously beyond that, you could see that McLaren or Williams were certainly, or even Ferrari to a degree, were the way forward. And it was Prost himself that actually convinced Ron Dennis, who did have reservations at first, to sign Ayrton Senna uh, for 1988. And the deal that they struck, it was a three-year deal and it allowed Honda to have the opportunity to continue working with Senna at McLaren following a successful season together at Lotus. It was too good for them to turn down. And Honda, as I said already, they rated Senna so, so highly. They said the younger guys called him the Samurai. When it came to using their engines in 87, they were so keen to continue this association at McLaren. So that's kind of the whole story. Prost yeah. ended up not only negotiating a deal to bring the best engine into the team he was already at, but unbeknownst to him to bring in the guy that would obviously take over the team from him two years later or much sooner than that, if you like, because in Prost's mind, he probably imagined world championship number three and four to come so easily to him. And probably more than that with a future driver in Senna, obviously waiting in the wings to come to life after Prost had had his fun at McLaren. But of course, it never transpired that way. Well, it's quite ironic that that choice by Alan Prost turned out to be detrimental to mm. a decent chunk of his career. You know, he only really recovered a few years later. It's, it's, it's crazy how like, one, one decision could sort of, kind of snowball effect into the way they did. Quite unfortunate for him. I think with hindsight, he wouldn't have uh, gone down that road, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the Prost-Senna struggle for supremacy 
over the course of 88 and of course in 89 in particular it put them on a collision course i mean it you know goes without saying um mutual admiration between the two had turned out to all-out hatred the frenchman accusing senna of dangerous driving on so many occasions and receiving more than a fair share of attention from both mclaren and honda as a result and um Senna's response and other people's response as well was that Prost was basically accused constantly of being in the pocket of Pfizer, which of course was the FIA before the FIA was a thing, of uh, Jean-Marie Balestra, French president. Now, of course, that name may ring a bell to a lot of you that watched the Senna film. Obviously, not a less than savoury relationship with Ayrton Senna. Of course, after this race, you'll be able to see why in more detail and we'll get into that. But I mean, those claims, Courtney, what do you make of those claims? It was really back and forth almost every race as if you've got two teammates so openly adamant about being superior to the other to the point where it literally is reduced to nothing but slurs towards each other from one way or the other. Well, it's a, it was a pressure cooker environment. You know, as you've already stated, you had one driver that felt that the other guy was, you know, preferred by the mechanics and the team that they were in. And then you had the other guy, Senna, who felt that Prost was being, you know, they had the advantage politically. So, look, when you, when you look at, like, even the most simple workplace, if you feel that you're rather, like, the victim of, you know, what's, what's the word? Nepotism. Yes. You know, you've got, you've got nepotism going on on one side, and then you've got politics going on the other side. We all know that doesn't end well. And this happened at a high sporting stage. So putting everything together, things were literally about to go back. Yeah. And and as we said before, it really didn't help Prost um, in in a way where he's paranoia. And it it had the firm belief, I suppose. I mean, paranoia is probably not the right word because it implies that he was crazy, but crazy in the sense that he was making this up and that this was this was all in his head. Um, But he had that firm belief that Honda and Ron Dennis in particular, who had obviously ceremoniously backed him so much um, to bring Senna in, then viewed Senna as the future of the team. I mean, this was always the plan, but... I don't think Prost anticipated at his own expense. I think he just expected that he was going to have his time. And then when he'd done, yeah. Senna would just take over. I suppose you can compare that to uh, Mercedes now, where they've got um, Lewis Hamilton dominating. Obviously, Mercedes is a bit tentative to whether or not they're going to bring George Russell in. When is that going to happen? Um, and, and in what shape or form? It's something similar like that. Not saying that Lewis is wanting that dominance in the team, but I'm pretty sure Mercedes want to avoid another Hamilton-Rosberg situation. Um, but obviously, that's another discussion for another day and another podcast. Um, so, you know, back then, Prost, I, one race in particular, he recalled at Monza. He had one car with maybe four or five mechanics. Um, whereas Senna had had two cars available to him back when we had T cars and 20 people were around him. And this was kind of the last straw for Prost. As a result, Prost had announced in July 89 that he would depart from McLaren and the Frenchman would join his new team Ferrari in 1990. Now, I remember you doing a bit of reading on this one, Courtney. There was an interesting moment in that race that I think McLaren fans learning about this won't appreciate. Um, And I can imagine why uh, this would have annoyed McLaren fans. And it certainly did Ron Dennis in particular when it happened. Well, let's get the basics out there. So, as you've said, mate, he's ended up going to Ferrari. We end up going to Monza, Italy. So, Prost ends up winning the race and you think yeah you know what just 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 be humble Alan be humble 
No, he doesn't. He decides to give over his trophy to the Tafosi for everyone to see worldwide. And that is really one of the biggest slaps to a face of a Formula One team you could possibly give. And I think that was the point where Alan Prost made his feelings towards McLaren very much known. Yeah, I mean, we've never seen anything like that since. And no. Wow. I mean, I mean, he's won enough trophies, so you obviously don't think he'd miss one. But to give it to, and it's, yeah, I mean, they would, I mean, Ferrari, obviously the team would not have accepted it if Prost had given it to them, but to give it to the Tifosi, of course. And what a way to herald in um, a new driver. I mean, it's like, I suppose in a way, if Carlos Sainz had done the same thing, uh, when he comes second at Monza, I don't think that would have been, I mean, obviously he would never have considered doing that, but not that he would have been able to anyway. There weren't any fans there, but um, yeah. Well, he's done it deliberately, yeah. Hmm. He's done it deliberately to antagonise McLaren and he certainly got what he wanted. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And uh, in the worst way possible, I'd imagine. But of course, you know, that kind of sets us up here to where we are now, up to the Japanese Grand Prix. So let's get into the next phase of this podcast, uh, just as a brief telling of the Japanese Grand Prix for the qualifying report. As expected, the two McLarens dominated qualifying. Even so, Senna was easily the class of the field, posting a time over 1.7 seconds faster than teammate Prost. As would quickly become clear in the race though, Prost was aware early on in the event that the McLarens were sufficiently superior to all the other cars on the grid, that even with his car setup fully optimised for the race, he could qualify on the front row alongside Senna but with a car set up far better suited to the demands of the race than his teammate. In his mind, he would just need to beat the Brazilian off the line at the start of the race and he would have a considerable advantage during the Grand Prix, as would be seen. The Ferraris of Gerhard Berger and Nigel Mansell occupied the second row, with Berger just edging his own teammate into fourth place by two tenths of a second. The Williams of Ricardo Patrese was half a second behind Mansell in fifth place and joining him on row three was fellow Italian Alessandro Nanini in his Benetton Ford. So, Courtney, I mean, from that early qualifying report that we see, obviously we were talking about the advantage that McLaren had, but 1.7 seconds to Alain Prost. I mean, it's a massive advantage. I mean, before we get into the other cars as well, but Prost was not deterred at all by that huge time. And, and bear in mind, guys, for those of you that aren't aware, that we had the aggregate qualifying system back then. It was over two days where on a Friday they would set a qualifying time and then on Saturday they set another qualifying time. You'd add the two together to get your aggregate time or get an average qualifying time and then determine what the grid would be. Even so, 1.7 seconds is huge. But as we said already, Prost was very much thinking about the race, Courtney. In your mind, and this is very hard for us probably to understand being amateurs, we're not F1 drivers by any stretch. I mean, what would go through Prost's mind to think that he'd be happy to be on the front row of the grid 1.7 seconds behind his teammate, knowing he set his car up to opt be optimized to the race, um, knowing that no one else behind him is going to get near them? Well, that's that's the healthy position they're in at the time, you know. And I suppose, you know, and also the championship position that Alan Prost was in. He realised all he had to do was keep it clean in order to win the championship. So, you know, there's a well-known saying in Formula One, the points aren't won on a, on a Saturday. So, with that in mind, and also let's not forget that Alan Prost was known as the professor. You've said it earlier on. He was one of the most intelligent drivers that we've ever had in Formula One. So, he put everything together. He, he had a strategy plan from the very start of this weekend. And at that point, everything was going to plan. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those 
boring guys that appreciates the tactical now of someone in Formula One. I mean, there are a few moments in Formula One today where you see moments of tactical genius that just happen off the fly. I mean, one memory that comes to mind is in 2016. Do you remember in China, Sebastian Vettel in the Ferrari coming into the pit lane and he was stuck behind, uh, I think it was a Toro Rosso. I can't remember what the other car was. It might have been a Force India. And I think the Toro Rosso was trying to deliberately hold up the Force India to double stack going into the pit lane. So it wouldn't be compromised. Sebastian Vettel in the pit lane where he was allowed to overtake still before he come in there had gone round the outside of both their cars and just drove straight through. It was like a brainwave. And it's like that. I love seeing stuff like that. Absolute genius. When you're driving a Formula One car, you don't think they'd have the capacity in their head on top of everything else that they've got to handle to be able to pull something like that off. I love seeing stuff like that. And uh, it's like a game of chess at 200 miles an hour. It is. With, it's That's exactly incredible. what it is. Yeah, and it's absolutely brilliant to come up with that. And this summed up Prost to a T, and as the next part of this race report will show you. In order to improve his straight line speed, Prost had his gurney flat removed before the race without Senna's knowledge, as revealed by F1 journalist Morris Hamilton. By removing the gurney flap, Prost had gone for a car setup with less downforce than Senna, giving him more straight line speed and protection against all but the most extreme overtaking attempts into the circuit's one clear overtaking spot, the chicane at the lap's end. At the start, Prost got away much faster than Senna did as he was hoping for, instantly wiping out the Brazilian's pole position advantage. In fact, Senna's start was so poor that Gerhard Berger in the Ferrari managed to get alongside him for his third place on the grid. Senna's McLaren had the inside line into the first corner, and he managed to keep the Ferrari behind him. With a race setup now clearly superior to his teammates over the first half of the race, Prost steadily built up his lead to almost six seconds. Senna lost an additional two seconds due to a slow pit stop. However, with a new set of tyres on, the balance of power shifted, and the reigning world champion began to reel in the Frenchman's lead. So that was kind of a brief introduction to how the first part of the race went. Um, coming to this point of the race, Courtney... Uh, how significant was that start from Prost? And of course, it how important was it to allow him to get that set up right, removing that gurney flap to keep that advantage over Senna? Well, at this point, it looked like it was going perfectly. Um, when Senna made a bad start, Alan Prost must have thought that Christmas had come early. You know, everything was going to plan. He'd pulled off another piece of genius, you know, with the removal of the gurney flap. He didn't let, he didn't let the McLaren... He didn't let McLaren know because so Senna didn't do the same thing. So at this at this point, it was advantage Prost in every single way he could think of. And the plan to seal the championship was in full effect. Absolutely. And um, I think it's fair to be saying that, you know, it just shows how concerned Prost was about any advantage being leaked over to Senna. Because this, bear in mind, guys, Prost has announced by this point he's joining Ferrari. We all know that he is on the verge of winning the championship for McLaren as long as Senna doesn't win the last two races. And on top of all of that, he knows that anyone he tells about doing this, other than perhaps the mechanics working directly for him, however few of them there may be, surely that info would have been leaked over to Senna. He'd have probably tried to do the same thing if there was a performance advantage. Um, it's just incredible how tight-lipped he had to be. Um, you'd probably never be able to do that in Formula One today with everyone watching everything. You'd notice it in a heartbeat. But um, yeah, so I mean, let's get into the second part of the race and see how that report goes. Behind the leading pair after his initial charge, Gerhard Berger's Ferrari's gearbox failed on lap 34 and the sister Ferrari of Nigel Mansell also suffered engine failure nine laps later. 
With the Ferraris gone, all real challenge to the McLaren charge had evaporated. The only opposition left for Senna and Prost was each other, as they were drawing away from the new third-place man Alessandro Nanini. Senna finally caught Prost on lap 40. Prost had deliberately eased his pace, allowing Senna to follow him closely in his slipstream for the corners, at the expense of forcing Senna to use up his much fresher tyres. And for the next five laps, the gap between them remained at approximately one second as the two McLaren drivers tried to position themselves tactically for the corners ahead. Prost had greater top speed on the straights, while Senna's high downfall settings gave him the advantage through the corners. So the important takeaway from that corner, of course, with the Ferraris gone at this point of the race, Nanini was completely in no man's land on his own, just happily driving around in third place, probably thinking a podium was all he was going to be able to hope for, not thinking for a second, despite what everyone was probably expecting, the two McLarens were coming together. Um, if you were Nanini, would you have thought there was any chance of a race win at this point? Or do you feel that the McLarens were just, they weren't going to go into each other? At this point, Nanini was uh, 2020 Max Verstappen, sitting happily in third, no threat from behind, and just, you know, keeping his fingers crossed that something was to happen ahead of him. And as we all know, that was about to happen. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's one of those where Senna and Prost, obviously, they were the moments of reckless driving between the two of them, but they never really had many incidents where they'd come together. Um, Prost was quite adamant about not doing that. Um, but obviously, in this race in particular, that was about to change. Um I mean, it's crazy when we think about it, but I suppose one thing I should probably ask as well is about the tactic Prost had adopted to try and wreck Senna's tyres. He deliberately eased down his... I mean, Senna was catching him anyway, but Prost had decided to basically exacerbate that by slowing down deliberately to try and hurt Senna's tyres following in the dirty air. And as you and I know, a track like Japan, it's so hard to overtake and follow another car, especially in this era. Do you feel, with the benefit of hindsight, added as well that this was a smart move from Prost or do you feel that perhaps he should have focused on maintaining his long advantage as best as he can and then perhaps try to deal with Senna later on if and when Senna caught up to the back of him well I'm going to answer your question with another question right there's always this there's always this question isn't there right if you had a superpower which superpower would it be so what would it be for you Adam oh Super speed, I guess. Super speed, right? I reckon for Alan Prost, I reckon it'd be the power of hindsight because <laughs> the power of hindsight would have saved him not once, but twice in, in you know that time of his career. Because if he just kept on with the pace that he had, he would have won that championship smoothly. Don't get me wrong, it's a good ploy by the professor to destroy tyres. We're often frustrated in this day and age about seeing the lack of overtaking because the heat coming off the car in front destroys the tyres and ruins the race of the guy behind. Mm. So in theory, it could have worked, but Prost was dealing with a guy that knew he had nothing to lose and is known for making overtakes out of nothing. So in a way, it was a risky move and, well, it, well the rest explains itself really, doesn't it? I mean, I'm guessing the rationale behind it was... You know, Senna's got a more favourable setup round the circuit in the corner. So I felt that on those tyres, Senna could attack the corners more with more downforce and the car be quick enough to try and keep up with Prost on the straights, assuming he can get near him. Uh, in my mind, I'm thinking with 
the setup that Prost had had, where it's more favourable on the straight, means he's going to have to put more load in the tyres at those speed in the corners without getting as much in return, meaning he'd probably try and wear his tyres out sooner. So I guess in his mind, he probably thought, well, if Senna's going to catch me, I might as well cause him to run in the dirty air and damage his tyres as much as possible, as the hot air obviously does. It wears the tyres out faster than following in the clean air. Then it's going to basically evaporate Senna's advantage in terms of cornering speeds, which of course would be the only thing Senna has left because Prost can just happily drive away on the straight. So it was a sound tactic, but of course, as we get to the next part in the race, Courtney, we're going to see exactly what happens next. On lap 47, Senna uses greater cornering speed to make sure that he remained close behind Prost through the challenging double apex spoon corner. This puts Senna directly in the aerodynamic toe from the leader McLaren, negating much of Prost's straight line speed advantage. Through the infamous 130R ultra-high-speed left curb, Senna cut Prost's lead still even further. The next corner after 130R is the chicane, the second slowest corner on the circuit. As Prost began to break for the corner, Senna dived alongside, but Prost saw the move in his mirrors and moved his car across the track early to block his path. Prost had told team boss Ron Dennis before the race that in the past he'd left the door open if Senna challenged so as not to take both of the cars out but he would not be leaving the door open on this day. Neither driver was willing to back down and the two collided just before the apex of the chicane. With their wheels locked and their engines stalled, the two cars slid to a halt in the mouth of the particularly blocked chicane escape road. So, I mean, Courtney, we just had the big, big incident between Prost and Senna there coming out of 130R. Of course, Senna managed to get a bit of a toe alongside uh, the right-hand side of Prost after following on a really good turn at Spoon Curve. At this point, we've seen Senna make so many bold overtakes. When you watch this back, are you surprised? I mean, again, it's hard because we weren't there live to see it, but are you surprised that Senna went for such an audacious move like that? Not all, really. You know, for two reasons. First of all, we we know the kind of driver that Senna was, and it's the reason why so many of us loved him. You know, he really gave us great moments where, and nothing, where he made overtakes that shouldn't have, even have occurred, but this the the ability the guy had, he'd always go for it. And as I've already said earlier on, he had nothing to lose. He knew that if he didn't get past past his championship was over. So putting it all together, I've no surprise that, you know, the things ended the way they did. Yeah, I mean, it was almost a move of desperation from Prost because he kind of left the door open for Senna. And at this point, I've seen this incident so many times and I can't think of a scenario where... Prost can feel that Senna was not far enough alongside him to allow him at least enough space to put his car on the inside. Uh, well, we see modern day cars try and do something audacious and you have to kind of get out of the way. But in Prost's mind, despite telling Ron Dennis that he normally wouldn't do that and that in today he was going to stop Senna at all costs, he didn't care what the result was, obviously because he knew he was going to win the world championship if both cars retired. So in, a, in Prost's mind, it was almost like, well, you might think I've got everything to lose, but I don't because if we both go out of the race, I'm champion. It doesn't matter who wins this race as long as it's not Senna. Um, and in a weird way, not to put words in his mouth, but that's probably what was going on in his mind at this time. And you can tell the moment under breaking where Prost sort of makes what half a turn, realise Senna's there and then decides, screw it, I'm going in. And he turns so yeah. much early into the chicane. And of course, the press were all over this because Prost was adamant, may still even be adamant today, that 
he did not deliberately turn in on Senna. Senna just outbraked himself and drove into Prost um, in a straight line. I mean, I don't believe in a month of Sundays that that's how it happened. I'm pretty convinced that Prost saw Senna come in, realised that Senna had got him, and his only alternative was to drive into Senna to either block him off or end up taking both of them out, which in Prost's mind thought he'd actually done. I mean, what do you think of that incident? And let's let's not forget again that Prost had the advantage in the championship. So if he was to take the pair of them out, he still goes on to win the championship. So again, we know how methodical the man was. So he probably would have thought of every single situation that would have been possible in that race and went, right, if this happens, I'm going to do that. He knew what he was doing. And well, the, the fallout from the, uh, the race itself. That really was boiling point. And it's, you know, it's such a shame we weren't ready to witness that happen. Like, I think I think we could have been off our seats for certain. Absolutely. It was unbelievable, like, watching it back, just how it must have felt when everyone was watching that race to see it all completely explode like that. But um, let's get into the next part of the report uh, to show, obviously, what happened next. As the vehicles were directly in the line of any possible out-of-control cars, the marshals hurried to clear them. While Prost unbuckled his belts and left his car, thinking this race was over and the World Championship was finally settled in his favour, Senna gestured to the marshals to push his car down the escape road. As the McLaren was pushed forward, Senna used the forward motion to restart his engine, and after it fired, he immediately accelerated down the escape road, weaving between the temporary chicane bollards arranged in the roadway. Although his car was running, Senna's MP4-5 had suffered damage to its front wing during the collision. And while Prost slowly wandered back to the nearby pit lane, Senna had completed almost an entire lap of the circuit before pitting for repairs. When Senna rejoined the race, he was only five seconds behind the new race leader, Alessandro Nanini. So, I mean, Courtney, first things first. Obviously, despite the brilliance in some way or the most cynical thought of Prost driving into Senna, thinking that the championship was won in his favour, how surprised must Prost have been to turn around and realise after he's unbuckled his seatbelt and got out that Senna's decided to ask the marshals to push him on and ended up carrying on after that? His heart must have sunk at that point. Yeah, when he made all his plans for that weekend, he thought, oh, shit, I didn't think of that one. You know, but, but Senna thought, again, Senna at that point, he thought, I have nothing to lose here. I'm going to do my best to win this race. And uh, he made sure he nursed that car around. Let's not forget he had to do an entire lap with a broken with a broken wing. And the 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 talent that he, he put in, in that lap was uh, I hate to use this word because I've used, but it was iconic. Yeah, you know, I mean the, the he, way yeah. to get himself in a healthy position after that collision. Bra- bravo to the man, honestly. Simply amazing. I mean he wasn't tippy-toeing around the circuit, that's for sure, Ayrton Senna. He really right. wasn't. I mean, to put this in perspective, guys, to show how dominant the McLaren was, is that those two collided with each other, probably sat there for about 10 seconds, pointing fingers at each other and everything else, saying, oh, it's your fault, your fault, this, that, and everything else. Then Senna's ushering the marshals to try and get them to push his car, which is, say, another 10, 15 seconds after that, maybe 20. Senna then goes slowly down the escape road. 30 seconds have gone by, or maybe a bit more than that. He's then gone around the track as fast as he can with a broken front wing. So let's say he's lost another 15, 20 seconds on top of that to Nanini. Then comes into the pits, 
And the pit stops would have been a lot longer in them days for fuel, tyres and everything else and a damaged front wing, which was wedged underneath the car to get that out. He's lost even more time, possibly a minute. Then comes out of the pits only five seconds behind Nanini. It's incredible how dominant that they were to be in a position so late in the race and still think, actually, we're pretty good odds on to win this race. Um, Absolutely incredible stuff. But that's, you know, and then, of course, let's get into the final part of this race report and see how this race ended up finishing. Senna did not take long to catch Nanini's Benetton. He passed the Italian only two laps after having his nose cone replaced in exactly the same place as the collision with Prost had occurred. Unlike Prost, Nanini didn't put up a significant fight. A locked wheel and a non-aggressively positioned car, the only indication of how hard he tried to keep Senna behind. Two laps later, Senna took the chequered flag. Nanini finished in second place, followed by the two Williams cars of Riccardo Patrese and Thierry Bootsen, who had driven in tandem and off the pace throughout the race. The only other driver on the same lap as the winner was Nelson Piquet. So uh, I guess, Courtney, we kind of almost answered this question ourselves. But in my mind, in your mind, sorry, I should say, um, did you feel that this win was in doubt for Senna after he come out of the pits? I mean, he was five seconds behind Nanini with only a handful of laps left. Um, did you think Nanini had any sort of chance? Because it, it didn't seem like in his mind that he had any chance because he didn't really put up much of a defence. No, I think uh, if you put the combination of a pretty special McLaren and a pretty special driver there and Senna. It was just, it just painfully inevitable to happen. Really, even even saying that, it's even worse when you think about it because Senna was a man scorn. He was going to do anything to win that race, and there was no stopping a man. And the Nini probably thought, you know what? I'm not going to try anything risky here. I'm in a really healthy position. I'm going to be on the podium. I'm going to get a healthy haul of points. I'm not going to do anything to destroy my race because if I do anything, even even if I try to put an half-assed effort to centre, he's going to be having any of it and we could end up hitting. So, yeah, he probably thought, you know what, I'm going to be sensible with Second isn't bad. But there was no stopping centre in that moment in time. No stopping him at all. Absolutely. And, of course, Senna crossing the line to take the win, taking the championship against Prost's better wishes uh, to the final race at Adelaide. Or so it seemed, as the final part of the race report will tell us. Immediately after the race, Ayrton Senna was disqualified by race stewards for missing the chicane following his collision with Alain Prost. Senna personally alleged that the decision had been made by Pfizer president Jean-Marie Balestra to give the championship to his fellow countryman Alain Prost. The race stewards and Balestra both denied that this was the case, stating that the Pfizer boss wasn't even present at the stewards meeting when the decision to disqualify Senna was made. Nanini was awarded the victory as a result and he took the podium ceremony with Riccardo Patrese and Thierry Bootsen. Senna's disqualification also meant that it was mathematically impossible for him to overhaul Alain Prost's points total, and so the 1989 Drivers' Championship went to the Frenchman. As he had gained no competitive advantage by missing the chicane, Senna and McLaren attempted to appeal the disqualification ruling. McLaren boss Ron Dennis explained that it had nothing to do with stopping Prost, who was leaving McLaren for Ferrari, winning the championship. It was that the team strongly felt that they had a win taken away from them by an incorrect ruling, and that resulted in a loss of prize money and bonus sponsorship money as well. At the Pfizer hearing in Paris later that same weekend, Senna's disqualification was not only upheld, 
but an additional $100,000 fine and suspended six-month ban were imposed on the driver. Pfizer themselves had also labelled Senna as a dangerous driver, claiming that six of the last races of the season Senna had committed dangerous driving incidents, eight of those in particular at the Japanese Grand Prix. So, I mean, Courtney, the thoughts on these post-race events of the decision itself, do you, I mean, do you feel it was possible at all for Ayrton Senna to return to the track in the position at Woody, which he'd left it safely uh, at the entrance of the chicane whilst facing the other way? You know what? This is this. What happened in, this, in that moment in time was everything that the fans hate about Formula One. They want to be seeing results decided on track. This wasn't going to happen. The politics were going to take over as I said in the last section, Senna had nothing to lose. Come on, if you're in his position, your adrenaline is rushing, you've just seen your rival get out of the car, you're going to do anything it takes to win. So I don't, I don't blame Ed Senna for what he did. But unfortunately, politics took over. Do you know, the, the side that we mentioned at the very start of the episode about the, the politics side's favouring Prost, this was now becoming a big talking point of this season. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely madness. And I, no matter how many times I see this, I never understand, one, how it would have been possible. Because bear in mind, Senna was pushed by the marshals in that direction. You know, they didn't pull the car back or anything like that. They pushed him. So, you know, if you were going to disqualify Senna, it's for restarting the car after it had been stalled. Because obviously it's different these days, but... um, uh, I'm trying to think. I think it was Michael Schumacher that had something similar. I can't remember what race it was where he had something like a stall or something like that, and they pushed him along. I, I, again, I can't remember. I might be wrong in this regard, but let me know if I'm correct in which race it was, guys. Um, but so you probably would have knocked him for that. But the fact that they expected Senna to facing that direction at the chicane, bear in mind these guys are coming down at 300 kilometers an hour, if you like, into a breaking point. If they make a mistake, they're going off where Senna's car actually is. So you can't exactly have Senna's car sitting there waiting for everyone to come at him. So someone's going to drive into him and do the same thing. The escape road is clearly marked. That if someone makes a mistake there, they can just go through. So you could have penalized him with a time penalty or something, but they didn't do that. So their only option was to disqualify Senna. I mean, that, that's just ludicrous for, for, for basically cutting the chicane at best. Can't disqualify the, someone for that. It wasn't even subtle what was going on here. Mm. I imagine being a imagine being a fan at the time. God, particularly if he's a fan of Senna. Jesus, it would have been. Could you imagine, right? You imagine in this day and age, right? Lewis Hamilton, right, getting disqualified from a race and a championship. The socials would be going mad, oh. absolutely mad. Mm. All, all, all the Lewis Hamilton stands, God, that, that, that'd be doing protests outside Parliament. Yeah, and everywhere else for that matter as well. But yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> crazy how that could happen at the time. But that was the decision. And I suppose this kind of leads into the final part of this episode between Process Center, because we've obviously established how the Japanese Grand Prix went down, the rivalry between two of the greatest drivers of all time. It, it didn't come to an end, of course, in 1990, if we remember rightly, Courtney. The uh, exact opposite happened where Senna drove into Prost into turn one very deliberately. Uh, I remember that commentary from Murray Walker 
when he was saying it was bound to happen and it has almost as if like it's an incredible event when it was like everyone wanted to watch a showdown between these two like uh, the second showdown and they're just disappointed that it's ended so quickly but in Senna's mind I don't care I've just won the world championship like screw you Prost it was reverse wasn't it it was reverse yeah. of the season yeah, and, cool. and if the first one was obvious that Prosta drove into Senna, well, this was one of the most obvious attempts to take someone out of a race to win a world championship. I think anyone has ever seen, yet nobody cared because it was like redemption for Senna. He basically got his own back in the um, most petty but genius way possible. Mm. I think you can admire that to a degree. But that's but that's exactly what. Them. That's why exactly went wrong with the management because that's the whole point why they're there. Mm. The fact that they didn't do their job properly yeah. led on to the events of 1990. And yeah. it just comes to show if you don't lead properly, there is going to be consequences. Absolutely. And speaking of leadership, I suppose before we finish this episode, we should probably ask the question about Jean-Marie Balestra. Was he pro-prost? Was he anti-Senna? Or was he a bit of both? Um I mean, Balestra was often accused of abusing his power or using his power for more than it was intended as the head of Pfizer. In, as I said, in 1989, after the Senna Prost collision, there were implications. I believe it was Autosport magazine that Balestra was actually involved in manipulating the world championship in favor of Alain Prost as Senna was disqualified from the race victory, fined and suspended. And this ultimately led to Max Mosley, for those of you older F1 fans will remember his name, his decision to actually run for Pfizer presidency. Um, and, and over the time, Senna had fell out with Balestra, who had threatened to revoke his super license, but was included on the 1990 entry list anyway. But I think Senna also threatened to walk away as well. I think the sponsors probably had a word or two in Balestra's ear to say, like, you know, don't be stupid. If you, if you don't include Senna, we're not going to be interested. Um and of course, that ended up culminating in Senna colliding with Prost in Japan 1990. It's a big FU to basically Prost, Balestra and everyone else at Pfizer. Um, Balestra didn't intervene or sanction Senna for that. And um, I mean, was that a reaction perhaps? Did Balestra feel that Senna had put him in an awkward position where if he did react, the accusations were probably going to be further levied on him? It would have been, oh, if, if he'd done it again. It's, it's quite interesting that he knew that his hands were tied, though. Yeah. Very interesting. But, you know, going back to the previous question of whether he was anti, more anti-Senner or pro-Prost, I, I think it's just very easy to think, oh, yeah, just because they're from the same country. That's the only reason. I'm sure there'll have been a slight element to that. You know, him and, him and Prost, you know, did get on well, but there's nothing particularly special about that. But can you think about the character that he what, Lester was? He loved the power. He loved to be in control. Mm. And he didn't like, to, if you're that type of person, you don't like to be challenged. It's safe to say that Ayrton Senna was a very outspoken person. Mm. So there was bound to be a personality clash. Senna was a massive threat to this man's authority. And he did. He challenged him on various occasions. So the first opportunity to ruin. And Senna's career or credibility, he was going to jump on it, and it was and it was proven in 1989. Yeah, I mean, it ended up other incidents, of course, between the two of them had occurred. I, I remember watching the Senna movie. One incident in particular that springs to mind was back at the German Grand Prix in 1991. Now, this was on the old Hockenheim layout 
where you had the chicanes and the really long straights, not familiar, not similar to the one that we have today, of course. Um, and I do miss that track. It, if you know, strangely, I was very nostalgic about that circuit. It was quite unique uh, in that capacity. And during this driver press or driver briefing, I should say, we had Balestra, um, obviously the drivers, and they were obviously giving the briefing on the race that was going ahead. And there was an incident where Senna had actually raised a question where he had asked for the tyre wall to be replaced at one of the chicanes by cones to introduce a runoff area if a guy snatches a brake. Now, this was at the one in particular where you're reaching speeds of up to 220 miles an hour. If you snatch a brake, you're going off. You're not going to be able to stop the car. If you're hitting a tyre wall, and this was Senna's words, if he was hitting a tyre wall, he was going to bounce off them and the car can go anywhere. You know, the tyre walls can only absorb so much energy. So any leftover energy is just going to push the car in the opposite direction or anywhere else, which is going to make him a danger to anyone else anywhere nearby, and not to mention the driver himself. So he raised the idea, can we replace it with the cones? Balestra straight away, quite emphatically and almost aggressively saying, no, 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 these are the regulations these are the ways that you must respect the regulations, even though Senna has clearly pointed out why the tyre walls was a bad idea. And as we've seen in modern F1, they've been replaced over time by more foam boards because obviously with technology and improvements in safety, uh, we should mention Balestra was quite influential in improving safety in the sport as well during his time. You know, that shouldn't be understated. You know, he wasn't didn't rule with an iron fist or be a tyrant, but he did do a lot of good in the sport. Let's not forget that. But he basically went on in saying... Um, quoted in his own words that the best decision is my decision every time and Senna just looked at it and thought I can see why you'd think that and then he responded Balestra by saying um, quite famously you don't know what my decision is going to be yet and then he put it to a democratic vote all the drivers vote in favour of either keeping the tyre wall as it was or removing it in favour of a runoff area with cones to negate where the drivers have to go round so they don't gain an advantage and it was unanimous practically that they favoured with Senna in favor of that. So, you know, as I'm saying, like the rivalry kind of transcended beyond Senna Prost to be in mm-hmm. Senna versus Balestra. And as you pointed out, Courtney, you had a man who very much loved the power, um, whether he abused his power to a degree, you know, people have their theories on that, but he very much saw not the anti-authoritarian in Senna, but a man who felt that there was this need to have more of a sense of justice installed into Formula One at the time. The drivers need more of a say, especially with safety standards, the way that they were. And on this occasion, it worked out. But over time, people seem to re- or seem to feel that Balestra very much was kind of falling into that tirade of becoming uh, a leader that very much ruled, uh, like his word goes. And after, you know, after that had happened, you know, Palestra was elected president of the FIA. Uh, he stayed president of Pfizer as well. Um, but after his comments about his involvement in 89, he'd actually admitted that he was very much involved in the decision to disqualify Senna and award the championship to Prost. And after that point, um, he'd lost the election in 91 to Max Mosley for Pfizer. He knew he was going to lose the election in the FIA presidency in, in 93, which he eventually did. He decided to stand down and uh, completely uh, just basically went off into the sunset, if you like. At 96, he'd left his role at Pfizer. And I suppose what we can say from this as a result with Balestra, that it was very much um, a relationship that probably 
wasn't one that the fans were overly interested in. They were more interested in the driving, but it's just the way that it kind of transcended beyond Prost-Senna to be in Senna-Balestra. And in a weird way, wrongly in some regards, fans will probably remember Balestra's time at the FIA more about um, his wrongdoings towards Ayrton Senna rather than some mm. of the good things he did in the sport. But as he said, the man himself admitted his involvement in that incident. You know, as much as we hate the politics side of Formula One, it is indeed a very important part of Formula One. And the fact that the fans at the time weren't aware, you know, of what was going on. In this day and age, these things would have been out there. It would have been an absolute scandal in this day and age. You know, but let's hope that kind of thing doesn't happen again because you don't want to be seeing championships decided by you know, the guy at the top of the uh, Pfizer at the time. It, it shouldn't have happened. And, you know, it's it's a shame that a, a season that you had a great, you know, a rivalry between two of the greatest drivers, went on to be two of the greatest drivers of all time, ended, you know, to be decided by politics. It shouldn't be happening. And, yeah, again, I just hope it doesn't happen again, mate. I really don't. Yeah. But on that note, guys, of course, that was our retelling of the rivalry between Prost and Senna. Of course, their showdown in Japan, 1989 let us know of course what you thought if you enjoyed it make sure to give it a like and of course don't forget guys to put in your recommendations for future episode ideas for us to go back and revisit through the f1 archives to basically tell the very next story of course as always make sure to subscribe to the dnf1 channel and we'll be continuing this very very soon so until then of course we will go through f1 history again with you sometime but make sure to stay safe And we'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 Retro Podcast. Take care. See you soon. Network.